Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, the podcast all about the good, the bad and the ugly of British policing. If you're interested in how policing works and you want to hear some incredible people talking about what they did in their policing careers, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Sometimes we cover some pretty gory or distressing subjects and there may be a bit of swearing from time to time. So probably best to keep the kids out of earshot. Right, here we go. Hello everybody, it's Ian here again. Episode 85 of the Tango Gillette Foxtrot podcast. Back again after several months of uh, just taking a bit of a break, which uh, yeah, I enjoyed very much. And uh, I've been doing all sorts of things, mostly around uh, a complete rethink about the world of work. So I'm actively applying for jobs at the moment and uh, going through that uh, process, which uh, I talk a little bit in the interview with Scott uh, in, a, in a bit. Uh, any of you who have been in this situation will know exactly what I'm talking about. I actually listened to a another police podcast hosted by Andy Ferry, who's an ex-police Scotland officer. And uh, yeah, dipped my toe into that one the other day. I thought it was excellent. Uh, I uh, listened to his interview with a uh, psychology uh, professional who has written a book all about how uh, tricky it can be for police officers to adapt to uh, leaving the police, whether that's leaving, you know, uh, to pursue something else or leaving uh, at the end of a long career. And it was really interesting listening to that conversation. His podcast is uh, the SFQ podcast. Uh, really interesting to listen to that. And certainly a lot of the things that they talked about, I definitely recognised. And uh, yeah, I would really urge anyone who is coming up to retirement or has recently retired from the police to listen to that episode on Andy's podcast, because you could spare yourself a whole load of grief. So uh, this week, I am talking to Scott Hamer. Scott spent, uh, I think, about half of his career on close protection, mainly in royalty. So really interesting to hear all about that. And uh, he's done some really interesting stuff since leaving policing as well. So without further ado, we'll get straight into the interview. Hi, Scott. Can you hear me? Good morning. Is that all right? <laughs> yes. How are you doing? All right. I'm very well, thanks. I uh, I never thought this would happen. <laughs> uh, well, um, you're. I can't see you. I can hear you. Oh, just let me sort all that out. Um... Good man. Always interesting dealing with the technology. Yeah, I've just I've just had to update. I've not used Zoom on this computer for a while, so um, uh, I've just can... been updating everything. There he there is. You there you are. Look at you. Flipping it. Yeah, there we go. Right. I can see you now. Flipping it. So uh, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. Yes, um, I think I think I, I often I often accuse podcast guests of being troublesome um, in, a, in, <laughs> in humor. Um, but I think in this case, I was the one who was troublesome and you were very well behaved because I think I I think I cancelled you on a number of occasions um for various different reasons and uh and then i and then it, then it gets to the point where you think 
oh, I still really want to interview this person, but they probably think I'm such a bell end now that it. <laughs> It's not the first time I've been stood up. It won't be the last. <laughs> so many apologies for my rubbish. Um, uh, yeah, my flakiness. I think that's the word, isn't it? Flakiness. I'm just glad you've kept the podcast going. Yeah, well, yeah, it's interesting. I've been through an interesting time recently. I, don't worry, I'm not going to turn this into some sort of half-baked free counselling session. Oh, I've uh, lost you. <laughs> oh, oh, I've got you back. Yeah. Is it my yeah. signal or is I it yours? I think it might be your signals because mine are good. Right, um, just one second. Um, you're showing a kind of like a rather worrying little red, uh, amber flashing. So if all the days um, this could have been, my wife decides she's going to work at home. All right, okay. My daughter is off uh, uni today, working from home. So oh, bloody I'm hell. sure they're both on the Wi-Fi downstairs. Just give me two seconds and well, I should be back. Right, is that any better, Ian? Oh, that's uh, that's spot on. Um, right. Yeah, did, did, you, did you just walk into your daughter's bedroom and kind of like, yeah. pull the lead out of the back of the laptop <laughs> i've threatened to turn the wi-fi off on this occasion that won't work it the object. oh god yeah reminds me of uh reminds me of a time many years ago where this is in old school policing i'm sure you'll recognize these sorts of stories um the um uh, we went got a call to to this address uh in a sort of council estate or somewhere like that and uh, it was all kicking off and the television was blaring, like properly blaring. And the PC, who was like an old sweat PC, told them to turn the television either down or off because you couldn't hear yourself think. And um, after about two or three minutes of backwards and forwards and them refusing to turn the television off, he literally walked around the back of the television and pulled the lead out of the back of the television. <laughs> Is that before they were designed to be pulled out as well? <laughs> Not out of the plug, out of the back of the TV. <laughs> so anyway, that's um, that obviously would never happen these days yeah. um, for all sorts of reasons. But uh, yeah, no, I was just saying, let's go back to where we were. Um, yeah, I've, I've been through a sort of funny period work-wise. And uh, yeah, I think there's something about, um, that's part of a bit of advice I'd give anyone, I think. Sometimes in life, you've got to, uh, trim the fat a little bit in your life, haven't you? So get rid of the things that just aren't working very well and mm. and kind of um, focus on the things that you need to do to make yourself feel better. So I kind of binned off um, some work stuff, which was really just tedious beyond belief. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then laterally, I've actually stepped away from doing the hospice um, uh, volunteering as well, because I was finding that was like, I mean, done it for six years. And um, I really enjoyed it. But there was times when it just used to really used to be, I mean, people would say, oh, isn't that working in a hospice with working with um, people who are dying all the time? It's not really, really depressing. And I'd, I think what I'd say to that is sometimes it is. Mm. Um, but most of the time, it's really, really um, rewarding. But other times it can get really, really, <laughs> yeah, it is really depressing. So you think to yourself, yeah, I think I've done enough of that now. Yeah, and, uh... <laughs> it's difficult. I mean, I've, I've got a friend, she's a manager for a hospice. Um, you know, I've been and visited, you know, friends and colleagues and stuff. Yeah. And like you say, if you're doing that day in or day out or quite often over six years, I must get, you're human, aren't you? At the end of the day, of you know, course. people think it's like of being course. a cop, isn't it? People think yeah, you've got yeah. some, oh, you're trained to do that. You know, you're, yeah. you're trained to deal with tragedy and, and horrendous incidents every day. You know? Yeah. Well, that's the thing, isn't <laughs> if it? If only they knew. 
<laughs> somebody said to me, said, what are you doing, you idiot? You just spent 30 years in the police dealing with people's human misery all the time. Yeah. And now you're working in a bloody hospice, like with dying people. Like, what, what's your problem? You got some some sort of like addiction to grief and trauma. Inside you, know? just like helping people, trying to you know make the world a better place. There's nothing wrong with that. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, less about me, more about you. Uh, so I'm really pleased to have you on the podcast, mate, because um, you've done some really interesting stuff. And I was flicking through your LinkedIn. Pro I did have a look at your LinkedIn profile before, but I just thought I'd go back and have another look at it again. And oh, bloody hell, mate. You, are you like the busiest man in the world? You've got like, you've done more, you're you've done and are doing more things it's like it makes me feel a bit faint like you're doing you're like a volunteer ambulance driver you've got like more flipping professional things going on that you can shake a stick at it's like <laughs> how many hours have you got in your day well not a lot if i'm honest Ian. and my wife even sent me a, I'll, I'll dig it out here on she sent me something yesterday what did she send me um I know you have six jobs. Well, you might as well have seven. <laughs> Seasonal work to add to your CV. And then she's giving me a screen grab. Oh, some, uh, well, it says performer elves. I think they're looking for some elves for Christmas. <laughs> I did do it at the kids' school a few years ago. So maybe I've got another career there. <laughs> oh, bless you. So we'll come on to talk about all of that stuff uh, in a bit. Um, in terms of what you're doing now, but let's go. Let's go right back, and um, you know. So you joined. You joined the police. What age were you when you joined the police? Um, I think I was 19. I joined as a cadet. Right. I, I I've always harboured this interest in 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 the police since being about five, and I mm -hmm. think I actually applied for the application forms when I was about 15. Do you remember those glossy adverts they used to have in yeah. the uh, yeah, the yeah. Sunday magazines? You know, could you and that's right. Um, you know, cops being spat out in the face. And I particularly remember one um, of, the, of the adverts and it was, it was, it was a police officer in, in full tunic and he was chasing a black guy yeah. in, in denim or so it appeared. And of course, you know, it, it, it went into everyone's prejudices, you know, everyone thought, oh, there's, you know, cops chasing a bad guy. But actually when you read the, the script, it said he was a plainclothes officer yeah. uh, and they were chasing somebody else who was who was off the page. And I thought it was a really, really yeah. good piece of very advertising. Very thought-provoking, yeah. wasn't it? And I don't it know what things like that. To, it's an interesting point, isn't it? Because it, it used to have adverts that really made you want to be a police officer. Yes. Now they're so boring and corporate, yeah. aren't they? <laughs> yeah. And uh, you just think, why would anybody want to be a police officer? Because yeah. they're just like, like policing has become, it's become so kind of sterile in many ways, you know? Um, the 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 job, you know, the marketing of the job is just also in parallel with that become yeah. very boring, hasn't it? No, I agree. And you know that series of advertisement. I think one of them showed uh, a cop at a football match being spat at in the face. Mm -hmm. Another one showed, um, you know, an armed robber, and you know, you were looking down the the nostrils of the of the shotgun, and it was That's just it. that impactive thing that you know it was like, could you do this job? And I thought, yeah, yeah I could do that. So I, I I sent off the application when I was fifteen, kept it in my top drawer for a few years, and then eventually I think when I hit eighteen, I applied, and they they suggested the cadets as a as a as an earlier entrance. So what year was that? So I joined the cadets in ninety one, January right. ninety one. Um, did a, a twelve months there. It was one of the last courses. I think they closed the cadet school. Uh, great shame, maybe yeah. 18 months later, and joined training school in January 92. Brilliant. So you're just a nipper, really. 
Yeah. Well, I always consider myself a boy in the job, even now. <laughs> and I'm retired. <laughs> God. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's like, you you know, people literally retiring from policing under the old regs, mm. I suppose, literally at the age of like 48, 49. Yeah. Which is crazy when you think about yeah. it. It's hardly surprising that, um, you know, some people obviously that really pissed the government off so much that uh, that they well, just changed everything, didn't they? Yeah, and we were looking in my course. We all joined. In fact, I've got you know looking to my right here in my office. Um, there's 24 of us there, cadets. The vast majority has finished uh, the job. A few retired. One became a pilot and a couple of other things. But the vast majority of us, you know, saw most of the job out. We mm. have regular reunions, um, and I remember at the time. You know, I think it was Commander uh, John Greaver saying that about 50% of senior officers then were mm -hmm. ex-cadets. So it was a great way of wow. getting young people into the police yeah, yeah. and retaining them as well. I mean, now I speak to cops and yeah. you know, some see it just as a, a yeah. few years before they can progress to something else. That's right. Yeah. So uh, so where did you get, where, did you, where was your first posting? So I went to Paddington Green. Right. Uh, which by chance I, kept, I I rode past last night on my way home. I had a bit of a diversion and um, yeah, I think it's been converted into flats as we speak, yeah, yeah. along with every other central London police station. <laughs> and back in the day, of course, um, Paddington Green was where they used to bring the terrorist prisoners, didn't they? Um, yes. That was, that was the yep. secure um, detention facility for all terrorist prisoners. Yes, correct. Um, and so do you, do you remember much about sort of, because I imagine that the atmosphere I'll ask the question rather than tell you what I think, but did the atmosphere in the Nick change if you knew there was terrorists, terrorists being held there? I mean, I imagine everything kind of got locked down a lot more, did it? Yes. You know, growing up in the Northwest in, in Bolton, um, you know, being from, you know, I had Irish descendants in my family, a few, you know, um, I think my great grand grandmother, grandfather, and I didn't realise until I came to London and, and you know, with the, with the Irish um, issue, even as a school, my, my primary school was next to a Catholic school mm. on the same estate. It was back to back. The teachers used the same car park, but the playgrounds were at opposite ends. I didn't know one person in that Catholic school. Mm. Um, and it was interesting, you know, as I grew up, you, people would be interested to say, what, what school do you go to? Um, and I think, you know, because there was a lot of Irish that came over from, um, you know, obviously Ireland and into Liverpool, Manchester, and that kind of band mm. of the Northwest, yeah. people were still interested in in, in that political aspect. Yeah. So I think coming to London, I, I was a little bit aware of it. And, um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, to visit Ireland working mm. um, a number of times. And, you know, my, I think my, my attitudes and opinions have changed somewhat. But certainly back in the 90s, when we had a, a, a terrorist prison ring, it was, it, was, it was very much like the enemy. Um, mm. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It, what what struck me is, you know, I was I was jailer for for a number of high profile ones, and what struck me, you know, you'd look in, open the cell door and take in a meal or a drink or whatever. They were ordinary. Yeah, they didn't fit my image of what a terrorist or what I thought a terrorist would look like. Yeah, yeah, um, I know it's a funny one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I often I often think because obviously I spent a long time in Special Branch, and um, you know, we did a lot of operations against the provisional IRA and mm. you know I remember um you know it's weird working in that covert world because because you're seeing them you're watching them going about their business and they don't know that you're watching them and um yeah there's an 
I used to I used to think there was a big difference between the way they would be behaving um, when they're just going about their sort of if they're long if they're long term if they're living in London long term, um, you know that you can tell the difference between when they're doing life stuff and mm-hmm. doing until and, and, and when they switch on to operational stuff. Yeah, and their whole demeanor just completely changes. You know, I yeah. often think it would be really, really interesting. I don't think it'll ever happen, by the way, but it would be really interesting to sit down and have a conversation with a few of those people. You know, and sort of kind of compare notes almost about, yeah. you know, what it was like for them, what it was like for you, and you just on a human level, it'd be quite interesting, wouldn't it? And I think you know, I, when I was I, when I left school initially, I went to work for ICI. And one of the ladies in my office, um, I remember when I came to London, I was in the section. I was, her son was in the army. She was always telling me about how he was in Northern Ireland. And I still remember her name, not seen her for over 35 years. And I was watching the news in in my section house room one evening and I thought I recognised that face. And it was her. Mm. And her son had been killed, um, you know, in a terrorist incident um, mm-hmm. you know, by the IRA. You know, that brings that home to you, that, that how close that is. And... You know the the Paddington bomb, you know, outside the the police station so, that went yeah. off in '92. It was my sergeant that picked that up. I was oh, on yeah. duty. I'd been out for um, I think backpackers, if you remember that in in what, King's he physically Cross. he physically picked it up. Did he? he physically picked it up in the um in the the uh, the phone box. It was in a plastic bag, I think. Yeah. And all the cops. I mean, I was on foot patrol. I was I was refs at nine. I was due in the nick at nine. I'd been out the night before. I was keen to get in and have something to eat. So I'd worked my way up the Edgware Road. Uh, and a call came in, usual thing. I think a code word had been used as a bomb at Paddington Station. Well, of mm. course, all the car units are down at Paddington Rail Station. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the skipper went out, just had a little look around the the, the perimeter of the nick and said, um, I think I found something. Mm. And I remember literally watching it. I stood at the, the junction of uh, Prade Street and Edgware Road and bang on nine o'clock at the time I'd have been walking in the steps, just saw the plume of smoke go up oh, and felt the the pat i'd yeah. describe as a pat like a sharp pat on my chest of the blast mm-hmm. uh, and it knocked a couple of my colleagues who were in the edge of a bit further up off the feet and luckily nobody's hiding that but it just brings it home to you yeah, yeah. Um, you know that time in the 90s when we'd get a call suspect package we got lots of those yeah. and somebody go around and open it or kick it or you know and then when you've seen one go off and it's on you know this is this is probably a, this might be a false memory on my part but did we used to have like these big rubber bins in the nick that you yeah. would put suspect packages into? Yes, we did. That yeah, did if exist, somebody brought it that? into the front counter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm sure we did, and yeah. um, and all sorts of things used to get put in there. There's yeah. some old boy be digging in his garden, they'd find a hand grenade or a yeah. on unexploded incendiary bomb from the Second World War or something, and then we had these massive, big, thick rubber bins that you would put put it into. Yeah. I'm pretty sure one of my colleagues at St. John's Wood night duty, a cabbie brought in something and put it on the desk. And that, again, that was, you know, a viable device. So, you know, this was the nineties. It, it happened. It, you know, most people have dealt with a, a real suspect device, you know, cops, whereas now, you know, very, very few people have had experience of that. Yeah. It's funny though. Suspect packages were always an amusing one, weren't they? Because you yeah. used, we used to get caught on an awful lot of them, didn't we? Mm. Um, particularly if there was, you know, say a bomb had gone off fairly recently uh, and then the spike in sort of well-intentioned but false alarms to 
suspect packages would go through mm. the roof. We'd get loads Absolutely. of them, wouldn't we? Yeah. And then it would sort of die back down again. And then yeah. there would be another bomb and then it would all go off again. We'd, we'd have loads again, wouldn't we? Mm. And um, there were some very eccentric ways of dealing with them, weren't there? Um, <laughs> and yeah. Pieces of string attached to things. <laughs> I've seen a few yeah. things. Everything from like you'd have the most risk averse sergeant there who would who would cordon off like five hundred meters all around and start evacuating yeah. houses, and then you'd get some old sweat sergeant who would go fuck this and just go up to pick it up, have have a look in it, and, and or give it a kick or something. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen both of those examples. And I think these days we probably wouldn't see you know, much of the latter. <laughs> Just finishing that one off and the, yeah, yeah. the, the kind of coming circle. Um, obviously working in protection at the time I was working with the Prince of Wales, the King as he is now, um, you know, on his visits to Ireland, including going back, you know, to where Mountbatten was assassinated and, and, and the town um, and, and just seeing the outpouring and the support from the locals um but also, I think on that occasion as well, he he met Jerry Adams, right? You know, and in my protection career in in, in Northern Ireland and Ireland, you know, I've met and been present, mm. you know, and seen face to face Jerry Adams uh, and and um, McGuinness, and mm. you know, seeing them literally in front of you, mm. you know, and and having grown up seeing them on the news and um, you know, growing up with. With everything that's 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 come out of that, it, mm. it's, it's it's very surreal. It's oh, very yeah. surreal. Oh, it is. It's really surreal seeing them now. You know, um, mm. some of these people. The one who used to always make the chills go up the back of my spine a bit was Jerry Kelly. Jerry Kelly was um, so he was like the kind of enforcer, really. I mean, and he'd be always stand in the cameras behind the likes of of um, mm. you know some of the really prominent. Uh, Sinn Féin people yeah. on, on TV like Adams and McGuinness and he'd always have that very menacing look about him you know and I think he probably did it deliberately um, you know he, very, he was very much the hard man you know but anyway moving on with your career um, so uh, just give us a bit of a flavour of the sort of jobs you did on, on the way to, to sort of protection then so I was at Paddington for about seven years uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, got my RT course. Always a you know the pinnacle of a PC's career, isn't it? To get the RT course, particularly in central London, where cars yeah, yeah. were pretty scarce. You know, we used to do a lot of foot patrol at the time. Mm. Enjoyed that. Never really thought about promotion, but a couple of other people were were going for it, and I thought oh, I might as well give this a go. So yeah. I put in for the sergeant's exam. Um, Probably to be honest, at Paddington, I had some really good, and I, you know, I hope we we explore this later on. You know, the leadership aspect of the job, but mm -hmm. at Paddington, I had some great, you know, there were some great leaders, proper leaders, not managers, not supervisors. Yeah. These were leaders, you know, they led men and women. Yeah, um, inspirational people. Lucky to have quite a lot in one place, and yeah. I think that kind of, um, you know, comes into your into your DNA. To but your it tends it tends to be it tends to be that sort of culture for want of a better word tends to be self-perpetuating though doesn't it because i think it does you, yeah you get you get those really great leaders and then that spawns new and up-and-coming leaders and then they then yeah. become role models to those who are less yeah. experienced and it just becomes like a, a virtuous yeah. circle doesn't it and we had a really good chief superintendent um old school who would have training days 
and he'd stand in front and you know people had usual job whinges and you know oh, that shit that's and he said why well it just is and he'd rip them apart but mm. if you said oh that shit why well because we you know if we did it differently we could save money we could improve efficiently go okay come and see me go to his office and he go let's try it mm. and it was that kind of inspirational leadership he expected to be challenged appropriately mm. yeah, yeah. Um, and politely but if you had a good challenge mm. then he would support it and yeah you know for my whole career i've kind of um you know naively thought that most good most leaders were like that yeah. um and i've realized that a lot don't like being challenged a lot don't yeah. like being told they're wrong um, no, definitely and, you know they'll rather yeah. just you know, sometimes, you know, somebody I know well said you can you can disagree without being disagreeable. Mm -hmm. But true. But a lot seem to take it to heart. So, yeah, I was yeah. looking at some good, good leadership, took the exam, went to Ilford, East London. Right. Very different. To Found it very different. Yeah. I mean, from an old Nick, Paddington Green, Harrow Road, where you kind of walk through one office to get to the other office and you know, into someone else's office. You knew everybody in the Nick because it was higgledy piggledy. You, mm -hmm. Um, Ilford was a brand new Nick at the time. It, it was like walking through IKEA. You're just in a corridor full of beige beach doors yeah. that just closed everybody off. Yeah. And it was a very different atmosphere. I didn't mm. like it at all. Yeah. Um yeah. and yeah, I think the new Nick probably killed a lot of the old atmosphere, you know, speaking to people and mm. it's often the way, isn't it? Yeah. 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 You um, you can sort of it was those old Victorian police stations were great buildings yeah. weren't they and they were great places to work and and whilst they were probably a bit of a health and safety nightmare <laughs> um they were there was great camaraderie and team spirit and certainly you know i worked in a few over the years and in, in the met and um you know my my fondest memories being of clapham which was very much uh that sort of building you know little rabbit warren of little corridors yeah. and sort of beautiful old victorian brickwork inside and you know and the sort of cast iron um radiators and everything and yeah you know it's great wasn't it yeah and you knew everybody because you had to crawl through one office to get to the next because it was probably never really designed for yeah. what it was being used for later on yeah through yeah. the pack, pack, pack it, your way through the cigarette smoke yeah <laughs> and the other good thing with central london you know after every late turn everybody went out for a drink now there were people who were driving there were people who didn't drink but the the social side of everybody still came out yeah. for a social experience yeah, yeah and yeah. again when i went to ilford you know a lot of people living um you know further out into essex and, mm. and most people be driving then and it'd be like oh is anyone going out for a pint after oh no we're all going home and it was a very very different atmosphere you know at paddington green I still keep in contact with them now the typist section this you know the the, the um crime support group the see everybody would be out um, yeah, know, you know all the civvies all the police staff you know it, it was a really nice atmosphere yeah. with everyone yeah, yeah. involved and it was just so different when i went to ilford so i did three years there um a stint at permanent custody which i quite enjoyed and then i um i looked in notices and because i've always done training in the job and they were looking to recruit lots and lots of uh, new recruits at hendon they were asking for instructors on right. a three months secondment so i'd already applied to go to royalty protection so that I, mean, I was just going through my courses so my governor said yeah signed me off and i ended up doing six months at training school oh, right, okay. skipper, which i thoroughly enjoyed so that and, was being a sergeant for yeah. a, a particular class or whatever or was yeah. it two classes wasn't it a sergeant over two classes i think i did two courses in the end in the six months right. um i still 
in fact one of the um one of the crew she joined in 2001 i still see her now she's a ctsa really? in uh in kensington <laughs> so i still have regular contact oh, with her now. That must have been, it's not, it's not something I ever did, um, but I used to think it must have been a right laugh. Yeah, but do you know what? And it, it was like a utopia that the staff loved being there, the students loved being there. Um, you know, we had sports facilities. You know, I used to take, I was a, a PTI at one point, so I used to take classes at lunchtime. We got about an hour and a half of our lunch, so you could do some fizz and get some food in, yeah. get back to class. So it was a really, really great environment uh, to work in. It's a shame it's, it is what it is now, but I, also, in my career, I've, you know, I've, I've tried to help people. There's a couple of people that I've, I've targeted mm. and it, it just proved right to me because one guy we got rid of at training school who later featured on a BBC expose for being a racist officer mm-hmm. in another force. Yeah. And the second guy uh, that I targeted, um, again, I'm watching a programme. I thought I recognise that guy and it was about dodgy bailiffs. So he's obviously been kicked out of the police. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I like to think that, you know, in, oh, it was a massive, ma- massively powerful way of identifying, getting rid of, rid of the idiots um, before they came anywhere near members of the public, you know? Correct. And we had them on site for six months. So most people can put up a you know facade, can play a part for a, you know, a week or two maybe. But when you're living and breathing yeah. with, with, with your peers, with your instructors, with, you know, canteen ladies, wardens, everybody else who's, who sees you, yeah. in your best and your worst yeah. and can report back it is the best way to filter out like you said the dross because you cannot hide for six months yeah. in an intensive um you know residential program yeah no it'd be really funny i mean there was it's this comical isn't it some of the i mean the banter and you know the fun and uh laughter mm. and some of the stupid stuff that goes <laughs> on it's just great isn't it so so after that you went off to royalty after that posting yes you? so i joined royalty protection 2001 quite memorable really because i think i was on my final exercise in central london right. when 9 11 occurred oh bloody hell. Um, so things literally changed overnight Flipping and within it. a few weeks i was whisked away and on protection <laughs> Right. So you uh, so you did the course, which is the standard course that everybody does, isn't it? Or did is there a different was there a different course for royalty compared to say the 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 guys and girls in in special branch doing the kind of political and ambassador type roles? So it used to be called the RPT, reactive protection training, I think. Mm. Um then you did your Viper course, and that was when special branch and royalty would come together to deliver that. Right. Um historically and i did get mine when i was at training school uh, as a skipper i got noticed that i had my hereford course because the royalty officers used to do an additional piece right and then it was cancelled obviously because of 9 11 and everything else happened and that was the end of that i think so um so we've obviously had quite a few people on previously uh, who have been protection officers um but that's generally ex-special branch protection which for those listening who don't really understand the difference back in today everyone who's on protect does protection close protection is basically part of the same department everyone's on the same department regardless of whether you look after the prime minister or the foreign secretary or whether you're looking after the king or prince william um it doesn't really matter um whereas back in the days that you're describing uh, there was two separate departments, weren't there? There was royalty protection, and then there was sort of diplomatic protection uh, under special branch. Um, 
so the people we've had on before have been from the special branch side of things. Um, and you're the first who's come from the royalty side of things. Yeah. So I'm really interested to understand um, some of the differences, I suppose. Um, oh, Duncan. Duncan was on, on both. Dun- yeah. Oh, yeah, he was on both, yeah. wasn't he? Sorry, and I've so. done both as well. So. Um, oh, right. OK. Yeah. So, yeah. So there is I think there are subtle differences, aren't there? Um, yes. what, how would you describe that? If you've done both, then you're in a really good position to, to describe that. How, how would you say that the two rules kind of differ? I think the first one is that because the royals have had protection for life, you come into them and work to how they would like it to be, essentially, mm-hmm. with a minister who who starts protection, you know, and I've worked with ministers when we've started protection and also when I've taken over from it. When you start a protection, it is a lot easier mm-hmm. because you can set the stall out with the minister and say, this is what we'll do, this is what we won't do. When you go to a royal and you just come off your course and somebody says, oh, we don't do this, we don't do that. And, you know, somebody asks you to do one of those tasks. <laughs> mm. You know, you've got a decision to make. You yeah. either say, I'm a protection, we don't do that. Or, right. uh, you know, and, and you know, decide where you want to go walking again on the streets or yeah. or you kind of get on with it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did make a few decisions when I when I started. I thought, you know, there's certain things that I'd heard historically went on. And I made a decision I wasn't going to do things like that. So, and I stuck to my guns. So just to be clear, you're talking about things that your principal or some other member of the family might ask you to do that was nothing to do with protection and that would be potentially uh, demeaning. Could is that would that be would that be a fair word to use? It it could be something as simple as carrying a baggie and I mean um you know it pops up in the course all the time. Do you carry a bag? I've carried bags for people. Uh, I'd carry bags for my neighbours. Um, you know, I'm not going to get mm. stuck in a ditch over it. What, what's what's better? Quickly taking a bag to the car when the principal's in the safety of the house mm. or making them carry in it and, and both of you walk out, open the boot, sling it in and, and spend a little bit longer outside, you know, in the danger zone. You know, mm. It's a no-brainer really, isn't it? So yeah, yeah. Um, I think there was something on LinkedIn this morning about people saying, you know, going out getting coffees for principals, you know, Again, I'm not going to die in a ditch about it. Mm-hmm. What's better, taking your well-known principal down to the local, you know, whatever coffee shop it might be in, in Kensington mm-hmm. and it creating a problem, public order, or, you know, raising the profile, putting them on off or whatever, or getting it delivered or going getting it yourself and bringing it back to the residence, you know. So yeah. from a safety point of view, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I think you made an interesting point right at the start there where you said that, these are people who have had protection basically yes. from birth, haven't they? Yeah. And and on that basis, uh, there is a well-established sort of routine in place that you either fit into or you don't. Um, and if you don't fit into that routine, then the chances are you're probably going to have to go, and, as we would have said, put a big hat back on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, probably one example is self-driving. You know, over the years, people say, our oh, principals shouldn't drive. We should drive them because we're protection trend, anti-hijack, yeah. da, 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 da. Um, you know, my view with protection is we wrap protection around the life they wish to pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're not moral guardians. You know, we just try and make something safe. So if a, if a principal wants to go skydiving, 
then are you going to insist you get strapped to them in a tandem skydive or, or do you mm -hmm. kind of manage it from the ground, the air, or whatever you're going to do? Yeah. Uh, some people, you know, no, we must do this. And we do. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, was, I, I used to teach on the protection course and you can see the dilemma when you take somebody down. We used to do it every now and again. You know, the Ford factory is not too far from me in Essex. It's got a test track. The principal is going to go and view, you know, the, the, um, the factory and then we'll throw in a spontaneous, oh, would you like to go on the test track in our new whatever mm. and of course it's a two-seater car and mm -hmm. you know the person taking them out is the ford driver and the principal sits in the front seat yeah. what do you do then mm. you know stop them doing it um mm. you know this mm. is about managing risk isn't it it's not about so who did you look after in the royalty side sorry on the on the royalty side of things who did so you when i look started after? um in 2001 i was in what was essentially called the backup office, the backups, um, team three. So we were close protection officers and we were assigned to different Royals every day or every week, mm -hmm. uh, which is interesting. I quite like doing that. You know, you work with many different people. So I've worked with all members of the Royal family from, you know, 2001. Um, and I left there on promotion 2004, five. Right. So I didn't become a PPO at that point. Yeah, um, it's only when I went back later that I became a PPR. So, so. Um, what was your sort of general? What was your general sense of being in, in close proximity? I'm not asking you to disclose confidential stuff, obviously, because that's that would be wrong to do that about naming individuals or whatever. But what was your general? What was your general sense, uh, having sort of li literally sort of lived and breathed alongside them? And and was it a sort of a positive experience for you it was but then i'm a realist of course people have got a public persona and you know we're very very privileged to to see people in their private very private lives as well mm. they are people you know they, they laugh they cry they bleed just like everybody else mm. um i think sometimes people look at celebrities or people in the public eye royals you know whoever mm. as some sort of special superior human beings that don't do the things that we all do um mm. the reality is they do so mm. as long as you 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 know they're real people um certainly that's the way i managed it you know i i always made a promise to myself i would always be honest i know people that dance around issues if a principal mm. asked me a question i'd give them an honest answer mm. um and i that's always worked for me if there was a problem i would you know try and solve that problem before it became one mm. options you know people would second guess the principle oh you know such a body always does it this way or such a body wouldn't want it to do it that way mm. um and i think the, the easiest way is just ask the principal mm. sir ma'am what would you like to do they'll give you a choice would you like to arrive at the west entrance or the east entrance yeah and they go the west you give them a choice you arrive at the west it all goes well fine um you know you make a choice for them you, you take them to the east why have you brought me here you know, I've never come to this one. This is the wrong, you know, just just a lot yeah. of people are frightened to speak to them because there's this, I don't know, sense that... Well, they're... it's a massive pop kind of power imbalance, isn't yes. there, in that yeah. relationship. And uh, they can make your life way more uncomfortable than yeah. you can make their life. Yeah. yeah. But also, you know, you're a, you're a, you know, certainly on the ministerial side and also on the royal side, you can add um, that say common that 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 perspective you know ordinary perspective they're getting briefed by the spads you know 
mm. private secretary is one thing. That private secretary in a very busy, uh, very busy principal's diary might get half an hour a week, an hour if they're lucky. Yeah. If you're sat with the principal driving, you know, from their London residence to wherever, you could be sat in the car for four, five, six hours with them. Yeah. Not no member of their staff get that amount of time. Their wives, husbands, partners, children don't get that amount. It's a very, very privileged position. So mm. you, know, you can have a lot of influence as a protection officer, potentially. Mm. Um, you know, positive and negative. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did you um when you're on the royalty side, did you start um sort of by a process of osmosis adopting some of the habits and mannerisms of the royalty? Did you, <laughs> did you start wearing a pinky ring, for example? <laughs> Putting your hands in your suit jacket pockets. No, you, I've seen so many people do that, you know, twiddle cuff links and do little <laughs> mannerisms. Um I did it's on a video actually, and I I, I did laugh to myself. One principle the way you know he points and i found i did it <laughs> on an engagement and uh and I, did, I thought to myself oh my god that looks like what the principal would do so yeah but i tried my very very hardest not to fall into anything like that <laughs> yeah it's funny i mean we used to take the piss out of a lot of the, the guard it was mainly I, I never saw women doing this so well done well done you know <laughs> female protection officers but there was a lot of blokes in special branch who would really it really would go to their head and they would start uh, you know acting in quite an affected sort of way uh they would be very fussy about their clothing where they would buy their suits and their shoes um and and particularly where they would eat where they were you know they were very they became sort of picky with their food because they were so used to eating in in Michelin starred restaurants, yeah. you know, with their principles. And um, I used to take the piss and most of them used to, you know, my brother included, uh, you know, take it in the spirit that was meant, but some of them used to get very, very sort of, um, you know, precious about, about their role. And it's like, mate, you're a protection officer, you know, God gives and God takes away. Absolutely. Because come the next time, of, you know, shuffle round of, of staff, you, you're going to be checking, pa you might be checking passports at Heathrow, you know, mm -hmm. so don't, yeah. you know, enjoy it while it lasts, but it isn't going to last forever, is it? You know? And it's it's very important. Again, I, I, I decided I'd keep my feet on the ground when I joined the department on, you know, all its occasions, three times kind of internally. And, you know, just, like that whatever it be injury you've upset somebody whatever you could be back on the streets and the the thing was because i always wanted to be in the police and always enjoyed real policing you know that those threats oh well if you don't like it go back to division or you know mm -hmm. da, da, da. i was like well but i'm not i'm not bothered about going back to division i'm not frightened but i actually chose to go back a couple of times yeah on promote and i enjoyed it you know my, my time in uniform as an inspector was was one of the best times I've had as an inspector. Where did you um, Where did you go? Where were you working as an inspector? Uh, Forest Gate, Forest Gate, Gate, Plaster, bloody, yeah. bloody the Borough of Newham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the most diverse boroughs in the country. Yeah. Um, probably so, about a quarter of a million people crammed in, and it was brilliant from start to finish. I had a great team um, of of skippers and PCs. You know, probably about fifty odd on the team. You know, civilian mm -hmm. support when we had CAD rooms. And it was a real good team uh, mm. of, of can-do people who who kept you know the the 
public in, in yeah. Newham, as safe as they could. For yeah, a, there's, certain, the there's certain boroughs in London and, and certain um, BCUs uh, around the country in other forces that have got that sort of reputation, you know, of just being relentlessly busy. And um, certainly Forest Gate was one of them, wasn't it? Yeah. So mm. when I went, there was an old, <laughs> there was an old sweat inspector who, who, you know, and I said, well, what's it like working here? And he said, well, imagine being on a campsite and you've got a bucket yeah, <laughs> to do your ablutions. He said, and uh, it's full up. And he said, here, that bucket's full. He said, and all you do is hand it onto the next shift. You continue <laughs> to ablute. <laughs> I know. And it just overflows and it never empties and you just hand it over to the next shift. Oh, I know. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. And that's yeah. the thing. That's the thing that, you know, we can laugh about it. But that's where I feel sorry for policing at the moment to take us a, a little bit of a, a political twist, you know, on this. I, I don't think people who haven't done policing have the first understanding of what it's actually like, have they? No. And and it's so frustrating, isn't it, to read uh, about some of the commentary about policing in the papers on TV or whatever. And and the people who have the strongest opinions on, on policing is inversely proportionate to the amount of understanding that they have on policing, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. The and police know how to police. Best. You just want you just want to pick those people up and drop them just for two or three shifts into the sort of places that we're describing and to see for themselves what it's like. Yeah. It's fucking chaos, isn't it? And well, I've always been, I've always been open. Um, you, you know, whenever I stop somebody in the street, you know, if they challenge, I'm, I'm fine. I don't have a problem with it. The more angry they get with me, the nicer I am to them, you know, deliberately. Mm. Um, if, if we get a complaint at, at Forest Gate, I'd, you know, I get a call from the, yeah, we've got a complaint at the front counter. I'll say, okay, I'll, I'll pop and see him. So I go to the front counter. How can I help? Yeah, complain about this, that, and the other. Right. I said, would you like to come in? I said, I just want to show you around. So I go to the control room. I'd say, mm. you know, you live at Newham. I said, um, how many people do you think are on the streets at the moment? Oh, you must have, uh, you know, 100, you know. <laughs> how many cars do you think we've got on the street? And I said, look at that board. I said, that's my resources for today. And all mm. those people there, they're in with prisoners. Mm. Um. You know, but those people have, have gone to pick up, those are sitting on, um, you know, somebody who's got mental health at the hospital for, for eight hours plus, And I'm sure that's another topic we could discuss. Uh, so to how many people do you actually think are patrolling the streets as we speak? And then when they actually saw the reality of it, yeah, they'd go, oh, my God, I never realised. I said, let's yeah. have a little look around the cell. And I'd take, I would take people around. I'd take them to the backyard. And in the end... Most people didn't want to complain. Yeah, <laughs> they understood what policing was about, and I'd yeah, give them a little yeah. insight. There was always the one that just wanted to make a complaint so they could, you know, use it against you later yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, there's yeah. that's different, isn't the it? Tactical you know, complaint. That's just a tactical complaint. Yeah, but most genuine complaints that the public had when I opened up and you know showed them a little bit what a police station and, and what we had to deal with. How many calls have we got outstanding at the moment? Oh, we got you know two hundred on the on the CAD you know, that we've still not gone to. Yeah. They would be like, "Oh my God, I didn't realize what what state the policing was in," <laughs> and yeah, that was yeah. back in what two thousand and five, two thousand and seven. That's when we had loads of resources. That's when we had cops. So I yeah, mean, yeah, imagine yeah. what that's like now. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Oh, I know. It's mad, isn't it? So, um, so anyway, let's let's talk a little bit about your. Um, did you see your time out then, back in protection, or uh, were you sort of there at the end of your career? Yeah. So I went from. 
Forest Gate to I applied for the farms policy unit at the yard. Actually, I thought I'd do a policy job, right. which I thoroughly enjoyed working for 19 for a short period of time. Mm. And from there, I went back to SO1 as it was. It just changed from special branch. Mm-hmm. Did about seven years with SO1 and then finally managed to realize my dream of going back to royalty protection right. three months before we amalgamated into uh, royalty and specialist protection <laughs> all right okay so uh, so yeah so you did quite quite a long time really backwards and forwards on protection really that was yeah. kind of really i think your... i did about half my career on protection and half on the streets right okay and and when you were a inspector were you still able to actually physically because sometimes they end up being sort of stuck back in the office kind of sorting out people's duties and all that shit but um, were you still able to actually physically be out and about um, as a as an active protection officer all that time? Yes. So as a team leader, I always tried, you know, even even now, every, every piece of work I've done, I, I believe in being visible and being able mm. to do the job as well. So I always maintain my skills. But the good thing about having done protection as a, as a skipper or as a PC, if you've done it that way as well, you know it works. You know mm. all the tricks. You know mm. all the scams. You yeah. know what needs to be done, what doesn't need to be done. Yeah. So when I'd get, you know, some people didn't know my history. They'd come up to me, oh, Governor, you know, uh, um, I need to do a, a three-week recce to the Bahamas for this principal who's got no <laughs> question whatsoever. Of course you do. Yeah, and I'd go, mm, do you know? <laughs> um, you know, and then they'd, they'd try and bluff me with, well, you don't understand the threats and risks. You know, do I not? Okay. <laughs> um, so you get that. So it was good. You know, I never had, I, you know, I didn't have anybody try to put, well, I'm sure people tried, but you know, it'd be harder to pull the wool over my eyes. I didn't do it myself. Mm. So I would do the, the the stuff. I never took a job off anybody. Um, I hope some of my colleagues, you know, won't, won't challenge that, but I'm pretty sure the only job I ever cherry picked was when the home office, and well, it was the home office driving this, decided they were going to do single person protection. Right. Um, and I took a principal abroad, who was going to Auschwitz, and I'd always wanted to go there. Mm. Um, and so I. Sorry, when you say job. just just to clarify, when you say single person protection, do you mean a single protection officer? Yes. And because normally there's at least two of you, isn't there? Yeah. So it was a single person because it was abroad. It was I think they were calling it facilitation or liaison or something like that. Um, but we were told, you know, that it's not you're not doing protection. So I did exactly what it said on the tin. I, I went. Um, to Auschwitz mm. hardly saw my principal mm. you know saw all the things that I'd always wanted to see the historical aspects of it and you know mm. very very interesting and, and moving it was too and then came back and wrote a scathing report about what a waste of taxpayers money it was sending mm. me to mm. do that when I provided no protection or assistance whatsoever yeah yeah it's a weird one isn't it and we've had previous podcast guests describing that kind of um it's an odd one isn't it when you take your principal abroad and there's all sorts of um, protocols, particularly around the carriage of firearms. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the, but I've got to say the way that Duncan described it, I think he generally, I don't know, it'd be interesting to see what you thought, but generally speaking, when you do go abroad, the local protection um, always appears to be pretty good, really, you know, in terms of certainly in the, the more advanced countries, I suppose. Yeah, and even in in some of the you know what you'd say would be less advanced countries, you know the the principles around it, you know the pe- the, the people trying to look after people, you know they still mm. do as, as good a job as they can. Although I've had some very very um, you know funny experiences in certain parts of the world, mm. um, you know when you when you when you give when, when I think 
well, I was in, I was in somewhere in the world. I won't say where it was. And I and I said to the, the person in my car, oh, can you get a message to the rest of the convoy that, you know, the plans have changed. We now need to go to the airport. You know, we're leaving. I think the weather had turned considerably and something else had happened. What I didn't expect was the convoy to stop in the middle of a busy street. <laughs> him to get out of the car and then run all the way along the 12 car convoy and inform everybody <laughs> in person. I assume that would be done by radio. Um, and then in a, in a, old school, old school, yeah, it was brilliant. Old school and comms. And in another part of the world, again, when you know seniority takes precedence and the poor. So I think in this case, the PPO, he had a silver revolver. I think he was an admiral of some sort. And um, he was very clearly senior. He didn't do anything. He was just around. But he was in the front seat as the PPO. Um, and the driver of the four by four thing was hurtling through some streets in Central America at great speed, literally was operating three radios. He had one in the left hand, one in the right. He was steering with his forearms. Oh, God. And the main set was going as well. So there's three. And I was thinking, Admiral, yeah. please just take one of those radios and help the poor guy out. If oh, I could no. speak the language, I'd have done it myself. <laughs> oh, I can't remember one of our previous podcast guests described a funny one of of the of the the Irish, the the Southern Irish version of the diplomatic protection or the of the special patrol group, sorry, the motorcycle. Yeah. Ones, it was like a bunch of motorbikes that looked as if they'd been sort of grabbed off the forecourt of a of a of a local motorbike shop, and <laughs> yeah. and then uh, then I think it was Duncan described the uh, the protection team for Erdogan, the Turkish Prime Minister. It was ah. like a, a bunch of it was like a motley collection of hire cars that had been sort of half of them were all sort of clapped out and you know all been driven through busy streets at mac 10 with no blue lights or two tones no. or anything it was just like the most it was probably the most dangerous thing that could possibly have you know putting the principle in completely unnecessary danger this is um this is the reality of, of, of pro i mean I, i've literally looked after principles from somewhere else around the world and the person who's driving the car is their cousin brother mate from hackney or, or tottenham <laughs> And it has literally been a minicab. And I've been sat in the front of a minicab with a gun with some <laughs> minicab driver who's driving their president or, um, you know, <laughs> prime minister around. And, you know, we, we would literally go to a, I think once I went to a, a really good kebab place in North London somewhere, which was another family member's. <laughs> and it, you know, it, it was it was so real and and, and different. It, it was a great experience. Um, what was it? I was going to something else popped into my mind. Oh, yes. Then... On one occasion, this chap who was a prime minister, I think, from somewhere in the world, said to me, oh, whereabouts are you from? I said, oh, I'm from, you know, a little, little place called Bolton. It's near Manchester. He goes, oh, I thought I recognised the accent. My wife's from Bolton. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and in fact, the pen that I'm still using to this day is is, is a gift that he gave me. Um, it's not an expensive one. It's a, a watermelon. I'm glad well, I'm very glad you haven't lost it. Like me, I suppose yeah. I haven't lost my accent, but I'm glad yeah. you haven't lost your accent. Well, I, again, I thought while well, I was policing and certainly, with, you know, I, I'm not going to be something I'm not. You know, I am what I am. Um, and if you start to play again, then you've got to play that for the rest of your life, haven't you? That's right. That's right. So uh, since leaving policing, yeah, as I said at the start, you've done a bewildering number of different things, um, which are, I suppose, 
could all loosely be described as security emergency services related. So, so what are you doing at the moment? So at the moment, I work at the Royal Albert Hall. That's my full-time job. Right. And um, clearly not as a singer. You're clearly <laughs> working as a security manager. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that's an interesting one. You see these jobs advertised. So I've been, I've been uh, looking, uh, actively looking for jobs the last couple of months. I've had some interviews. Uh, some have gone really well, some less so. Uh, and I've actually got a final interview for job next week, which I'll kind of keep keep my powder dry on that one. Yeah, but good luck. You see, yeah, thanks. You see these um, you see these jobs advertised for senior security manager for X Y Z, and um, yeah, probably quite a lot of ex cops end up doing those jobs. But just describe what does that job actually involve? Because I've got no idea. I think I could guess, but I'd probably be wrong. Yeah, so my title is. Um... Uh, strategic senior security manager a lot of s's too many s's for me right um essentially it's it's just overlaying you know the the, the building security the public safety security everything that's going to come in with martin's law um but one thing i will say on, on applying for jobs and i've you know i've applied for a few when i left the police there's jobs that you you get because you know somebody there's mm. jobs you don't get because somebody knows you mm. um but you know certainly with the the albert hall what i'll say about that is I don't think I've ever seen such a fair process. Right. I applied for the job and then you get, again, you're thinking, well, who knows who, hmm. this, that, and the other. And I went for the interviews, two interviews and, and, you know, was successful. I went for another job at a high profile venue in London, having known the person who was, who had the post previously, um, did well on both panels, but then there was a little bit of internal politics. And eventually I was told, you know, they went with the other person because they had more experience in, uh, kind of uh, not private sector, but in in that particular sector, mm. I won't disclose exactly what it was. Yeah. Um, but certainly from my process, having recruited other people, when I put out a post, I've, I've I've recently put out a post for a couple of security managers. When those CVs come in, they're completely anonymized. So when I'm looking at them on a, a platform. Mm. If I know the person, let's say you put in, I knew where you'd work, then I could guess it was you. But right. if you're coming from another part of the security world, I have no idea until I actually select, mm. oh, who do we want to interview? It doesn't pop up. And yeah. I thought it was a really, really great system because you're actually mm. selecting somebody on yeah. experience. What they've, what they've done. Yeah. yeah. And not, you know, anything else. And I thought it was a very, I'm, you know, I'm, I, it's probably one of the fairest processes I've ever seen. Yeah. It's so been a real, uh, it's been a real eye opener to me. Um, you know, I'm sure there might be, people listening to this who are actively uh, looking for work, um, maybe having just left the police or maybe thinking about leaving. And uh, maybe there's an awful lot of stuff on LinkedIn now, isn't there? Targeting uh, disillusioned police officers who are thinking of leaving. And uh, there's a lot of them who are, you know, based on the numbers on there. Um, but it's a, it's a really weird one for me because obviously when I left the police, I'd been in the police for 30 years. Um, it was all I kind of knew from that point of view. And then I set myself up in my own business. And I worked with quite a lot of different companies um, as a sort of an advisor, consultant, sort of self-employed, which is, which has its, um, you know, pros and cons really. And it, it, it's very nice to have that sort of flexibility, but but you, you're never quite, you're sort of living from hand to mouth a little bit. You're never quite sure where the next bit of work's going to come from. 
Um, you have to deal with all sorts of different customers, some of whom can be really good and others can be a bit of a pain. Um, uh, and yeah, so I got I got to the point where I thought, oh, I just want to get I just want to get a proper job again. I want to be yeah. an employee again because yeah. it, you know exactly how much you're going to get paid every month. Um, you want to get into a bit of a routine and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but it's it's been a real eye opener to me to get back into that situation of mm. I say get back into because never I was never in it in the first place um, into that situation of applying for jobs. Uh, so you see a job advertised on LinkedIn, for example, um, you think, mm, yeah, that sounds interesting. It's, I sound as if I'm probably pretty well qualified to do that. Uh, and then you sort out your CV. And I'd say seven out of 10, you literally hear nothing back from yeah. at all. Nothing. You don't get an acknowledgement of your the fact you've applied you literally it's just goes into like a black hole doesn't it yeah and you know what it's nice to have an acknowledgement and certainly you know i always make sure i acknowledge people i give feedback i said there's feedback available you know somebody applies for a job i applied for a couple of jobs before i um retired and i I wanted a bit of practice as well you know as to how it was so i I applied for a variety of things and i'm going to mention them i'm going to give argos a bit of a shout out here because i applied for an argos job (laughs) as a delivery driver i had to take an online test yeah yes online test and (laughs) what you'd do with a parcel if it was um undone and you know honestly it was a really interesting process um i didn't get the job but what they did do is they sent me a nice email to say Thanks for your application. Uh, you know, unfortunately, on this occasion, we won't be further in. But like you said, the other ones you thought you were in with a chance with, you hear nothing from. And I just think it's downright rude that, yeah, it's weird. The, you know, the, the extent of applying for a job and going through a process. Look, it doesn't take much to hit 100 emails saying, dear, put your name here, yeah. you know, send and, and and make you feel a little bit. Yeah. You know, and uh, and again, you know, the more you dive into this stuff and the more people you speak to and you you, you gradually learn how it all works but do um, have a practice it's you know if you've done 30 years in the job you've pro- you've applied internally but there's a big difference in externally and i think yeah. you know it's worth throwing in a few applications that you know you, you, do, you don't really want but it will give you some yeah um exposure to you know the process testing and exposure know, to being completely ignored that's what you're saying Scott. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah no it can be it can be quite uh, demoralizing uh, yeah. if you if you let it if you if I, I think you've got to i think you've got to adopt a mindset of saying i i'm going to apply for this i i expect literally nothing and anything more than nothing is a bonus isn't it yeah mm. But, but the other uh, thing for me, you know, if we're honest as ex-cops, you know, and I've always said there's, there's, there's two types of cops generally, those that work hard and those that hardly work. Mm-hmm. And the issue in the private sector is that a lot of people have been burnt by those that hardly work. Right. The lazy cops, the, you know, they might be a chief superintendent, they might, you know, be commander, they might have had a great CV, mm. but when they actually drop into where they drop into, they've never worked in the private sector. Yeah. They are essentially lazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and very quickly they get found out and of course yeah. then the private sex thinks oh, we've been burnt by the police now yeah so you know certainly some of my interviews i said look you know i'm applying for this i'm 49 i still mm-hmm. want to work um i i like working i've got lots to give still i've mm-hmm. got children who are going through university you know i'm not somebody who's topping up my pension i am yeah. here to do a job 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I made that yeah. really clear on some of my interviews because I know other people. Um, I remember a, quite a senior security position a few years ago. Somebody actually left early from spe special branch mm. and got the job over a senior retiring, um, you know, person from the security world. Right. Why? Based on the fact that he was giving a lot up to come to this job, whereas the yeah. other person had yeah. a nice pension. Yeah. And was, I don't think he would have done, but the perception was that he was just topping up his pension. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was actually told by a CEO of a company that I ended up working for as a as a advisor. Um, he said, we don't generally, I avoid ex-senior cops. Um, mm. And I said, well, why is that? And he goes, because uh, they don't want to work, basically. They don't actually really properly want to work because they've got a big pension. Um, what they do want to do is to swan around, go to conferences, yeah. hang out with their mates in the bar, yeah, and um, do as little as they possibly can. Yeah, and, and I know it's a generalisation. I knew yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, look, people, you know, with my career, I've had quite a lot of fallouts with senior officers, but you know, I've, I've be fair there are a lot of good ones out there as well and i've seen yeah, some yeah, of them got of very good positions who, who do well but that there is definitely a perception that senior cops retiring going into security positions may be a little bit lazier but yeah hopefully yeah. you won't come across that yeah yet. well they haven't they probably <laughs> haven't got the they haven't got the hunger have they that that someone um you know who hasn't got that pension yeah. to fall back on um might have but um mm. yeah so you you also uh noticed you 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 were uh did some work as an ambulance driver for the nhs is that right yes so what what brought you into that um another interesting story um so i had the accolade of having the the most re-rosters in the met just right. prior to retirement i had 119 um and of course the senior officers you know when they when they devise the kpis rather than something that's actually meaningful you know they they'll crunch numbers and say oh let's reduce all re rest days to whatever so i had a mm. lot to take and you know, during lockdown i thought you know i, I quite like to keep myself busy so for people and... listening to this who don't understand what that means basically you can re-roster your rest day and basically oh, bank, of course, yeah. bank bank it can't you yeah and then and a lot of people uh take those rest days banked rest days prior to retirement don't they yeah and certainly as an inspector you know we don't get overtime so if i worked you know, a period of time during the day, then I would claim that day back, mm -hmm. um, which is, again is another interesting story. Because I remember um, when I was at SO1 with the chief superintendent, she said, Scott, you've only booked on for an hour, but you've claimed a day back. I said, that's correct, ma'am. I said, I worked a 16 hour day the day before. I said, so over two days, I've worked 17 hours. Mm -hmm. She said, yeah, but you've got a day back for working one hour. I said, but over two days, I've worked 17. I said, how many how many ordinary hours are in two days? She went 16. I said, so I'm an hour over. I'm actually giving you an hour. <laughs> yeah, she couldn't get it. You know, and she was really, you know, you know, as if I'm cheating the system. Um, yeah, so I had all these days to take. And of course, they, the police were supplying ambulance drivers. And I thought about doing that. But of course, they're not going to let me do anything that's going to maintain or increase my rest days. So somebody who was an ex-cop said, um, there's a company that that's supplying ambulance drivers, um, you know, work for them. They're looking for ex-police and people who've got blue light experience. Mm -hmm. So um, I did. And literally within a and couple of weeks. you have to weeks, be an advanced driver. Um, 
do you know what? I think she just had to be a carrier driver. I was an advanced driver, obviously, class right. one, for those that remember. Um, <laughs> not the, not that you had not to class get, two, you, that's you not an advanced driver. You have to get that. Class drivers, uh, sorry, class twos call themselves advanced, and class ones say class one. Um, so, yeah, I was driving the ambulance, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, this was at the height of COVID. You know, I had people in the back of the ambulance, you know, who were clearly dying. Mm. Um, you know, for those people that don't think COVID was real, um, worked with some great paramedics. Unfortunately, mm. a couple of those as well lost their lives to oh, COVID. Um, and I spent four months literally doing a four on four off shift, um, you know, using a majority of my rosters. And I worked with some great paramedics who I keep in contact with today. And, you know, one of them, unfortunately, she's, she's, you know, decided the NHS isn't for her. She's moved across. Mm. The, I won't say as a result of me, but I'm sure I've had something to do with it. She's now mm. moved across to the security world. All right. Okay. And, you know, I, I hear from her quite regularly. She's working for a security company now, seems to be doing quite well, the right decision. It's a shame that the NHS has lost her because she was mm. a really good paramedic. Yeah. But, you know, security world's gained out of that. Um, yeah. I think yeah, a, lot I really of, enjoyed it. a lot of these uh, organisations, um, I'm a, I'm a, uh, school governor and you know i think teaching has a a big attrition rate as well um there's a big yeah. attrition rate within uh the health service um so i don't think policing's on its own from that point of view no not at all no um, i think a lot of public service you know really is I'm, i've we've both seen the police i've had an open door into the nhs and see how that works it really is as as good as the people are within it mm -hmm. the service itself is on its knees um, you know, and it's within moments of collapse at any time, mm -hmm. but people still turn out day after day mm -hmm. and they're not being paid an awful lot of money as well. The paramedics and, and no. ambulance drivers, and they do a brilliant job. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It just needs a, a root and branch look at, you know, the whole thing as to how we fund it, well, what, we, what we expect out of it. You know, you've got yeah. a full ambulance that's sat on, you know, bless her, an old lady that's fallen out of bed um, and then can't be deployed mm. to another you know, call, you know, the, it's a waste of an ambulance. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, it wouldn't be. It's an incredibly inefficient use of resources, but yeah, yeah I don't suppose. Uh, what else can you do, really, whenever yeah. A and A and E is like absolutely yeah. uh, jam packed? But um, so, what does the future hold in store? Are you gonna, you're gonna obviously enjoying your current role and no plans to change. Obviously, not that you would no, say no, that I... you did on on a podcast. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no. I I always like to give. You know, wherever I go, I always like to give it a good few years, you know, make a change, make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. it. It's it's different. It's work. I've got to work. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a commute. I don't like commute. You know, when I was working on protection, you have you to physically, bags. physically go on site every day. Yeah. Well, I, yes. I mean, there's there's chances to work from home, but mm -hmm. in my view, it's security. You need to be there and present, don't you? Yeah. I mean, you can't do it remotely. Um, Must get some nice uh, freebie tickets to you doing that job. Yeah, yeah. Once you've been there for a little time, you do get some complimentaries. Um, I think I saw who did I go to see not long back? I think it was Ronan Keating and uh, and Gary Barlow did a, a set with the Royal Philharmonic. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it's it's the proms at the moment. That's very very busy for us. Last night the proms tomorrow, so that's oh, going to wow. be busy. And then back into. I mean, it does. There's. There's a main event on normally most days of the year, apart from Christmas Day. And, and are your security Boston staff all uh, employed there, or do you sort of spring people in on contract? So I've got an in-house team, and I've also got, um, you know, a contracted company that I can bring in for events, which mm. um, you know is what most most venues will do. Bring yeah. in a security company. 
yeah. but I've got a good bunch of you know I, I walk around I speak to them I interact with them you know they they all love working there it's a great place to work and when I started you know you, as you do mm. you you talk to people oh you know people who work there for 30 years they've got badges for people who've got 30 years plus service wow. there's a few people who've got 30 35 years and wow. you say oh you know do you, do you enjoy working here love it and of course being job and cynical you go really and they go yeah I said everything yeah and I'm like oh my god and it really is a positive place the people are nice uh staff are happy yeah um, and you know look we all moan about the job but mm. deep down we love it but yeah. people still yeah. moan um, yeah well yeah it's just officer, nice to be in a positive environment I think that's half the problem isn't it because police officers have been uh such a reputation for moaning for so long Whereas now they've actually got a reason to moan. And <laughs> the right problem then. is no one's listening. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> it's like, Everyone's well, got their own problems. You've always moaned, so we're just going to ignore you. No, but yeah. really, really is bad now, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've been saying that since 1829. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll just ignore you. So listen, my friend, um, I've really enjoyed chatting to you. It's been really interesting. And uh, I've, I've re- learned a lot, as I always do with these conversations. It's great. And um, yeah, so thanks ever so much for coming on and chatting to me. No, I'm glad we got it together eventually. Yeah, I know. I've got my <laughs> shit together, I tell you. There's uh, nothing to do with you, me being really flaky, I'm afraid. But uh, yeah, we got there in the end, so that's yeah. good. Listen, mate, uh, enjoy the rest of your day. And uh, I'll add you to the list of people I owe a beer to. Yeah, look forward to drinking that with you. All right, thanks, Ian. All right, Mitty, you take care. Cheers. Bye-bye-bye. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>